invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John 16. John chapter 16, we come back to the Gospel of John, to this glorious text. Our text this morning teaches us three great truths about the triumph and the security of Christ's joy. There are a few words in the English language which when you say them, you almost can't help but smile. Joy is one of those words. My sister's name is Joy. It's hard to be mad at her when you have to say her name, Joy. It is a happy word, but not because of the word itself, as you know, but rather because of of what that word represents. Jesus tells us in Luke 15 that there is much joy in the angels of heaven when just one sinner repents and is saved from their sins. Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that the the culmination of our faith, the end of it, is to enter into the joy of our master. The finish line of faith is to, to cross the Jordan and step onto the celestial shores of heaven into the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore as described in Psalm 16 and verse 11. In Luke 10, Jesus tells his disciples to not rejoice in them having power over demonic spirits and being able to command them out of people. Don't rejoice in that, he says, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. As you come to the end of the book of Revelation, that is the picture that is painted. One of great joy as God's people are together with him in the new heaven and the new earth, a place that can be defined by lots of things, but preeminently joy in the Lord. We know the Holy Spirit's work upon us to fill us with joy and peace as we believe on the Lord, as according to Romans 15. Our faith itself is described as one of joy, described in Philippians 1. We serve with joy, like Paul described in Philippians 2 how he's being poured out as a a sacrificial offering on the altar of their faith. And this made him rejoice. His sacrifice for them made him rejoice. We serve like Paul for the sake of other people's joy. We, We partner with them so that they would have more joy, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. As the Holy Spirit himself works in us, he produces out of us as we walk by the Spirit the fruit of joy, according to Galatians 5. Christians are abundantly generous to others out of their own necessity because they are full of joy in the Lord. According to 2 Corinthians 8, they they give sacrificially because they're joyful. Believers always pray for one another with joy, according to Philippians 1. They rejoice together in Christ being preached, whether in pretense or in truth, according to Philippians 1 as well. Colossians 2, Paul rejoiced to hear of the the good order of the church in Colossae and of their firmness of the faith they had in Christ. Paul described the Thessalonians as as having received the word with joy and the Holy Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 1. Later in that same letter, he says, you are my joy, my crown, and my glory. 2 Timothy 1, Paul describes the joy that he anticipates as he looks forward to seeing his son in the faith, Timothy. 
he's longing to have the joy of that experience. Joy is, is such a part of who we are in Christ that we're even told that we can rejoice when various trials come upon us. That through the hardest things of life, they work to mature our faith. Therefore, we can make the choice to rejoice in them. You see, beloved, Christianity is a religion of joy from beginning to end and at every point in between. So I wonder this morning as we approach this text, if if you were to put your joy on a scale of 1 to 10, 1, like, yeah, it's there somewhere, but I have no idea where. I know I'm supposed to have it, but I don't have it. 10 is like you've never been as joyful as you are right now. What number would you assign to your soul? My longing for you from this text, and I think God's design from this text, is to encourage and increase your joy in the Lord. It's a glorious text which teaches us the the triumph and the security of Christ's Joy, and, and I mean that on multiple levels, Christ's joy. It, it's his joy. He has secured it. But it's also joy you have in him. It's, it's your joy because of him. It's Christ's joy. John 16, verse 16 says this. Jesus says to the men in the upper room, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. May God, through the preaching of his word, fulfill our joy. Let's tackle some preliminaries to understand before we jump into the meat of this text. It's been a bit since we've been in John, so let me remind you that we're in the middle of the upper room discourse of Jesus. Whether they're still in the room or not, or whether at the end of chapter 14 they got up and left and started walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's up for grabs. But they are on their way to the Garden to some degree, and they're anticipating, Jesus is anticipating, Judas coming back with the tribe of soldiers to arrest him from the Sanhedrin. They're going to arrest him and try him in a kangaroo court and a mockery of justice, condemn him to death for blasphemy against God, nail him to a Roman cross, before that, lash him with the cat of nine tails to within an inch of his life, make him suffer the worst human suffering possible so that he sheds his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus knows this is coming. Before it comes, he prepares his disciples. He says, I am going away. 
but I am sending the Spirit to you. We learned about that earlier in chapter 16 when he says, I'm going to go to the one who sent me. I'm going to my Father, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my Spirit to, to help you, to be with you, to fill you, and to guide you into all truth and to glorify me. And now in our text before us, he, he comforts them some more in light of his coming absence. And he says, listen, the sorrow you're going to feel is going to become joy. The sorrow that's coming is going to actually be to your joy. Verse 16, he makes a statement which brings about complete confusion in his disciples, which if you're a teacher in the room this morning, take heart. Even our Lord had confused students at times. You're not our Lord, but you have confused students too. So take heart there. And they're wondering, what in the world is he talking about? Verses 16 to 20 are, are difficult to understand and kind of pick apart the spider web of comments. The main question that Jesus asks, or that he says that they ask about it, is this a little while. So a little while, you will no longer see me, and then a little while, and you'll see me again. And they're like, what, what are you talking about, a little while? And then they, they ask him again, or they're wondering, what does he mean by going away? Where is he going to? And they've had this question all the way since chapter 14. And the question for us is, is Jesus talking specifically about the coming crucifixion? That's obviously the, the most immediate fulfillment, that he's going to go away in death through his death on the cross. And then he's going to come again, obviously, on Sunday morning through his resurrection, which would shortly follow. Well, certainly there's fulfillment of this text in that happening, right? Jesus dies and the disciples are filled with great sorrow. And their great sorrow, in fact, on Sunday night, they're, they're hiding in fear in a locked room because they're so afraid and so scared and so filled with sorrow, even though they've heard reports of Jesus being alive. But when they see Jesus, they're brought unending joy. But could Jesus be pointing beyond that? Could he be pointing to that and more? And I think he is. He's pointing ahead to his ascension into heaven, to the right hand of the Father, which would also bring them sorrow in this world. And then he's pointing beyond the ascension to his second coming into the world, which will bring the fullness of joy for all believers, the culmination of our redemption, the fulfillment of all of our salvation promises. Others have said that Jesus is speaking of the sorrow of his ascension, followed by the, the joy of the Holy Spirit when he comes upon them, and that that's the fulfillment of the joy. Well, as we work through the text, I hope to prove to you that Jesus is most certainly thinking of the immediate fulfillment of his death and his resurrection. But I think he's pointing beyond that to a coming day when the fullness of his presence and his redeeming work is realized, when sorrow is forever turned into joy and completely realized in the fullness of joy at his right hand forevermore. Along the way, as I prove that to you, I also hope more than that that this text encourages your joy in Jesus. Jesus teaches us three great truths about this joy. The first is that sorrow will come. You can't get to the joy until you get to sorrow first. Sorrow will come. Sorrow will come. It's a duh statement, but Jesus thought it important enough to say it clearly. He had been somewhat ambiguous before that, but now he's really direct. 
He says to them in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That equation, that formula, truly, truly, I say to you, is Jesus' way to say to his disciples, listen up. I'm about to say something very direct to you that you are confused about. And he's being very clear to say to them, you are going to face sorrow. He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He sets the truth plainly before them. He, by the way, never hides the hard things. Jesus doesn't. He always lays them plainly before his disciples. He doesn't build up to the hard things in your following of Jesus and hope that when he does tell you, you're ready for it. No, he lays the hard stuff on the front end. He tells you to follow him, it's gonna cost you your life. You're gonna have to take up your cross and follow him. He he tells you that that if you're gonna gain eternal life, it's gonna cost you your temporal life, that you can't value things in this life and cling to Jesus in faith at the same time. He tells you the the hard realities of the world being against you, that to follow Jesus, you're gonna put yourself in at odds with the rest of the world. He tells you you might lose the closest of relationships to you, your own mother or father or siblings. They might turn on you because you've turned to Jesus. He tells you all that right up front. And same here with the disciples. Before the sorrow ever comes, he says, listen, you're going to weep and lament. And he goes on to say, you will be filled with sorrow. You will be sorrowful. He uses two different Greek words in this verse to emphasize the fullness of sorrow they're about to experience. He already told them in verse 16, you're not going to see me any longer, and then a little bit later you'll see me again. So the sorrow of verse 20 is obviously linked with his departure and his absence in verse 16, right? You're going to be sorrowful because I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be here with you. Notice also that this sorrow is, is brought upon them. This is not something they create It's not something they manufacture. Now, we have enough of that sorrow in our lives. Our our sinful rebellion against God, both pre-Christ and post-Christ, brings all kinds of difficulties and sorrows and consequences into our life. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about sorrow that's gonna come on you simply because you believe in the Lord Jesus and are rescued from your sin by him. That verb for you will be sorrowful is a future passive verb. It's coming on you and it's going to happen to you. It's nothing you're doing, it's going to come to you. And why will it come? What will make them so full of sorrow that they'll weep and lament? Well, the most obvious fulfillment is the coming death of Christ on the cross. As I mentioned, we read in all of the Gospels of them mourning and weeping his death. We read in John 20 of them cowering together in fear and sorrow. They're bewildered and sad. But more importantly, this promise of of coming sorrow points beyond those few hours of sadness between Friday afternoon and Sunday. It's really not all that long, right? And yes, they, they weeped and they were lamenting and they were sorrowful but there's more here and the phrase that convinces me of that is that he contrasts their sorrow with the world's joy 
He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. There's not much of a record in the Gospels of the world rejoicing at the death of Jesus on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. The best you could do would be the the passerbys as Jesus was hanging on the cross, and they, they saw him hanging there, and they mocked him, saying, you saved others, and you can't save yourself, and turning their heads and shaking and wagging their heads at Jesus. That's the best you really could do. Actually, when the Sanhedrin hear of the promises of Jesus and the threat of him rising from the dead and in their minds, the disciples stealing the body, they're anything but joyful. They're in anxiety mode, trying to figure out how to keep the sham going and guarantee their rebellion. But when you expand your view outside of the Passion Week, outside of Friday to Sunday, and you look at the the state of the world since the ascension of Jesus, you see 2,000 years of joyful rebellion. His physical absence has created a playground of deception and rejection of truth. And apart from the grace of God intervening through the church, proclaiming the gospel in the world and saving some, the world is amok in the joy of their sinfulness. They are delighting in their rebellion against God. They're having a good time. There are pleasures in sin for a season. And they are rejoicing that the king is absent so that the subjects can do whatever they want to do. And boy, they're making hay while the sun is shining, don't you think? Or should I say while the sun is absent? They're making hay. They're having a time of it. And they're happy to revel in their sin while they rub it in the faces of those who don't sin in their specific way. This is what I think is described in Romans 1 in a post-ascension world when Jesus is absent and the church is present. Paul describes the world in rebellion and says the human race has rejected obvious truth from God considered it to be a lie. They've exchanged the truth for a lie and made a lie the truth and made the truth a lie. Instead of worshiping the one who created them, they now worship the thing that was created by the creator, namely themselves. And God said, in Romans 1, it says, God gave them up to their depraved passions and to their debased minds. And as you work your way through Romans 1, you remember there's a long list of of sinful realities which dominate their rebellious lives. It's an overwhelming, overpowering list. It's just a litany of depravity on stage in the world. As you get to the list, the, the list ends by saying this in Romans 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So they know there's capital punishment on the line. For their sin. They know this is an eternally serious thing to rebel against the God of heaven. They know that. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And the idea of approval is more than just, hey, yeah, that's good. No, like, that's awesome. Do your sin and do it all the more. That's the posture of the world when Christ is physically absent. Is also how the world is described in 2 Timothy 3, where Paul says the world will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're all in on this thing. And they are rejoicing in the physical absence of Jesus because they get to have their way. Sinners are quite happy in their sin. And for those of us who are in Christ in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, this adds to our sorrow. This weighs upon our soul. You, brother and sister, are swimming upstream. You are walking the narrow way, which is hard and difficult and hard to find as opposed to the broad and level way, which is easy and appealing. You are carrying your cross throughout this life, identifying yourself as a follower of the crucified and resurrected Lord. You love God more than you love your own family. You're willing to follow God anywhere to do anything for his glory, even if everyone else rejects you. You are fighting the good fight of faith, and that fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers and against cosmic realities and forces of evil over this present darkness. We're not fighting for victory. This is not a battle we have to fight so that we can secure our victory. The victory is won in Christ, but it is not yet realized, and we are fighting from victory. And we must fight. The victory is ours, but we must fight. And on top of that, we operate each day in a sin-cursed world which groans under the weight of the curse of our rebellion. And you feel that on every level. You feel that physically. You feel that emotionally. You feel that relationally. You feel that mentally. You feel that spiritually. The curse weighs heavy upon your life and adds to your sorrow. Beloved, Jesus says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Sorrow will come. But oh, the glorious news is that sorrow will turn into joy. Sorrow will turn into joy. There's a glorious contrast in the middle of verse 20. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Joy. Take that to the bank of your faith. Build your eternal spiritual retirement upon that promise. Put all of your spiritual capital in that investment. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Notice Jesus does not say that joy will simply come after the sorrow. Just endure the sorrow and it will give way to the joy. He does not say that. He says sorrow will turn into joy. To make the point all the more clear, Jesus helps us and uses his own illustration, which makes it really easy for the preacher. He says, listen, it's just like a woman who gives birth. The point is obvious, right? That's why he used it. It's so clear. Great sorrow comes upon this pregnant woman as her hour to deliver the baby arrives. The birth pangs are unlike anything she's ever felt before, more severe than can ever be described to any man who thinks his stub toe is in comparison to her pain. 
And as she endures that pain and she longs to be free of the agony, her affliction and her, her pushing through the agony bring this baby through the birth canal and in a matter of moments in that room, angst and anxiety and pain and screams turn into joy as that newborn child breathes its first breath outside the womb and is placed on his mother's chest. Joy floods the room as a new life is welcomed into the world. That woman's sorrow was the pathway to her joy. There's no other way to get a baby into your life from your womb, but through that process of childbirth. The joy of having her own child was the destination. Her sorrow was not the destination. But the only way to get to that destination was through the pathway of sorrow. So too, Jesus says, with his disciples. Sorrow will come upon them as their hour comes on them. As Jesus' suffering and death descends upon them. They will weep and they will lament and they will be full of sorrow. But he says this pathway, this, this sorrow is the pathway, not the destination. The sorrow will, will turn into joy. And that word for will turn into can be translated as will birth or will bor- be born, will become, will, will turn into something else kind of a play on words by Jesus that our our sorrow will give birth to our joy. Our sorrow will be changed into something fundamentally different. And that something fundamentally different is the glorious opposite of our sorrow, which is our eternal joy. And what is it that will make that happen? What is the key that unlocks the the door from the tunnel of suffering into the glorious palace of eternal joy? What's the key that opens that door from darkness to light? What is it for the disciples? When will their sorrow give way to this victorious joy? Well, look at verse 22. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. For the woman in labor, it was when the child is born. That's the key to the joy. For the disciples, it's I will see you again. It's seeing Jesus. Actually, it's his seeing us. You notice how he turned the phrase around? Earlier in verse 16, he said, in a little while, you'll no longer see me. But again, you will see me again. In a little while, you'll see me again. Now he turns that phrase around in verse 22, and he says, I will see you. He's saying the same thing, because when we see Jesus, he'll see us. But he's changing the emphasis. It's not like he's gone somewhere to, now we go looking for him. We're not not playing some celestial game of hide and seek, where we search the cosmos to try to find our hidden Savior. And when we see him and we win the game, then we have eternal joy. That's not the point here. The point is he he has left for a time for a purpose, as he said in John 14, to prepare a place for us to come to be with him. And he says, and I will come to you in John 14 and bring you to be with me where I am. And that's what he's saying here too. 
It's his initiative to rescue you from your sorrow. And when will he rescue you from your sorrow? When he comes back. When he returns into the world. Obviously, he's speaking most immediately about his glorious resurrection. Going away for a moment into a borrowed tomb in real and true death. But gloriously rising from the dead and seeking them out. They didn't go find him after the resurrection, did they? They went to the tomb to put spices on his dead body and he appeared to them and said, I am risen, go tell my disciples. Then they ran to the tomb and they saw it being empty, but they did not see Jesus. Went on their way and he found them, right? Again and again and again throughout the gospels, he pursued and found them. I will see you, he said. And every time he does, the disciples are filled with great Joy. And the very thing that caused their sorrow was the thing that turned into their joy. You understand that their sorrow was so great that it paved the way perfectly for the fullness of their joy. The weightiness and the heaviness, the, the value added of their eternal joy would not be what it was if there was no cross. There had to be the suffering and the sorrow of a crucified Lord to know the joy of a glorious King, Savior, Master, and Lord. Therefore, every sorrow that comes because of the physical absence of Jesus in this world is the pathway to the joy that we will know when he returns as the judge of all and the King over all. Beloved, in case you're missing the point, let me drive it home to heart level. Jesus is counseling your heart here on how to think about your sorrow. And we all have it. We all have a litany of things that weigh heavy upon us every day. And he's instructing the disciples and he's instructing you and me how to think about and endure through our sorrow. He says to his 11, listen, there's a greater joy that comes through the sorrow. So like the pregnant woman, know that the difficult realities are coming. But at the end of the process, there's victorious joy which will wipe away the memory of the horrors of the previous sorrow. And they'll give way, they'll give birth to joy that is victorious and triumphant and secure and unending. What a statement from our Lord. What a promise. Again, I say to you, put all of the spiritual capital of your faith in that bank. And someday you will cash that check and enjoy for all of eternity the glories of its riches. Jesus is just hours away from the darkest tunnel any human has ever walked. In a matter of moments, after saying these words, he will detach himself from his disciples and go further into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he will pray what is maybe his most famous prayer. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, but your will will be done. Three different times he separates himself from his three 
closest disciples and prays that prayer. As the agony of the cross looms in John 16, as he knows what he's getting into, he knows the dark tunnel he's about to enter into, what does he do? He instructs the disciples, meaning he himself is doing this, how to go through sorrow. He points them to the thing that's sustaining him, which is the joy which is to come through the sorrow. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews said, right? The end of chapter 11, the hall of faith, believe God, walk by faith in God, be like these glorious saints of old. And he turns the page into chapter 12 and calls us to consider Christ. And then he says in verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friend, there has been no greater sorrow. There's been nothing more heavy upon the soul of any human who has ever lived than the reality of the cross of Calvary. And as Jesus anticipated the heaviness of that sorrow, he looked through the sorrow to what it would turn into, to what it would birth And what did he see? He saw eternal, unending joy. And for that joy set before him, he endured the sorrow. So friend, you have sorrow, maybe sorrow upon sorrow, which you must now deal. Or in days to come, may have to deal. When your whole world falls apart in a sin-cursed, devil-dominated kind of world as the world turns on us and attacks us because we don't celebrate what they celebrate. And in a society which the transsexual movement, which as part of their movement is the mutilation of their own bodies. If they're willing to do damage to themselves to carry out what they believe to be best, then just know, as we saw last Monday at a Presbyterian church and Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, that they will do damage to anyone else who is in their way to get what they want. And I say that to you in all seriousness to say the sorrows are going to increase barring a work of the Lord. I'm not a prophet. I just know what the scriptures say. And I see how culture is going. And if it keeps going the way it's going, guaranteed you are going to become the object of the world's wrath. As they rejoice in their sin, they hate anyone who stands in the way. And they hate especially the church who they see as the the one linchpin in society that is keeping us as Americans from letting this go whole hog throughout society. As you face sorrow upon sorrow, I plead with you to follow the counsel of Jesus, to know that sorrow, by God's design, is the pathway to eternal, victorious joy. And be buoyed in the sea of rage and anger and wrath by this promise. No matter what our Lord asks you to endure, you can 
Walk through it faithfully, knowing that it will produce eternal joy on the other side. Lastly, this joy is secure. This joy is secure. The sorrow turns into joy, and then this joy itself is secure. It's eternally secure. Jesus says, no one will be able to take it from you. He's again speaking first of the resurrection, and then I think of his second coming. His resurrection from the dead will give them a joy which cannot be taken from them, and and yet this joy is a down payment of the joy that will be fully known when Jesus comes back to the world. This joy, he says, will be forever secure. The, The joy of knowing that our Lord has been raised from the grave points us to the ever greater joy that one day he's returning, that the curse will be broken, that the fullness of life and joy will be ours at his right hand forevermore. And I understand when we're talking eschatology, I'm, I'm going over a ton of the nuances of what's going to happen between here and there. I get that. That's not the point that's being made in the text. Jesus is pointing ahead to the fullness of joy that we know comes at the end of his millennial reign and the, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth and an eternity with him and his people at his right hand. And Jesus knows that the joy of being raised from the grave points to and guarantees the joy that is coming when he returns and it's all over. Jesus tells his disciples, no one can take that joy from you. And you must ask, why does he say it that way? If he's just trying to tell them it's an eternal joy, why doesn't he just say this joy will never end? He doesn't say that. He says, no one can take this joy from you. He's making the point to them and to us that people will try to take this joy from you. And there's plenty of thieves and robbers of joy in a sin-cursed world. Enter it in through your thoughts and through influence upon your emotions and your affections, offering you faux joys, false gospels of joy. You just believe and act and do what we do. You'll be as joyful as we are. And they're all lies trying to steal your joy. Not only that, but the world will, will come against you and it's rebellious wickedness, and try to steal real, true joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says clearly here, no matter what you do to a real Christian, you cannot take away their true joy in Christ Jesus. It does not mean we skip through our trials like every day is a sunny day. Does not mean there's no storm clouds or high winds or tornadoes in the life of believers. It means that we run constantly to the ever present shelter of the love and victory of our Lord Jesus. This is what faced that church in Tennessee this past week. As our brothers in Nashville gather this morning to worship. with six of their own no longer able to gather with them, three of them kids. As they weep and lament and are filled with sorrow. As they're plunged to the depths of horrific experience. They find like every Christian has in every trial they've ever faced that their feet land on the bedrock of Christ. And their joy is secure in him. 
And though they grieve, they grieve with hope and joy. This is also then a joy which is experientially known. It's, it's eternally secure, but it's a joy that you can ebb and flow in your experience of. That's Jesus' point in verses 23 and 24. He says, I, I'm leaving, and, and you're not going to be able to ask me anything anymore. On that day of your sorrow, I'm not going to be around for you to, to talk with and ask questions of and, and ask for things from. But he promises them a great promise. He says, I won't be here, but I'm giving you a new avenue, a new relationship with the Father. You now can ask the Father anything in my name, and he will give it to you. He says, until now you've asked nothing in my name. They haven't asked, had to ask the Father because they've been able to ask Jesus. Now Jesus is leaving. He says, the Spirit's coming, and he'll instruct you how to ask of the Father through me, and he will give it to you. And then verse 24 in the middle, he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is a command given by Jesus to his disciples, to his apostles. Ask. And then a promise associated with it, you will receive. And then the glorious hope of that promise fulfilled is that your joy will be full. In other words, I'm leaving, I'm departing, but I'm giving you an avenue to have your needs met in the midst of the sorrow. And in that sorrow, the, the avenue for you to have your needs met is through prayer in my name. And that guarantees we don't ask for things to spend on our own passions because we're asking in Jesus' name. We're, we're beckoning the name and reputation and power of Jesus before the Father. And we're saying to the Father, answer my prayer like if Jesus were asking you this. That changes how we pray. That means we want to pray in, in line with God's will, in line with Jesus' clear instruction and his own heart, not with just what we want. And as we face the sorrow and the agony of a wicked world, Jesus says, pray, ask, ask, and it will be given you. Beloved, in your sorrow, prayer is not an option, it's a command. It's not a thing you can do to seek relief, it's a thing you must do to find help in your hour of need. Being confident of this very thing, that this high priest who went before you stands before the throne of grace and gives you constant access to the Father who in your time of need is willing to hear you based on his account. And so in your grief and in your sorrow, whatever that is and however long that lasts and however severe it weighs upon your soul, Know that prayer is not a drab duty to endure in your affliction. It is your lifeline. It is your glorious privilege being united to Christ, now able to speak to the Father as one with Christ. And it is only the Father, by his grace, who can give you the grace needed to persevere in sorrow the grace needed to endure the shame and the affliction of an opposing world, the wisdom and the discernment to walk through the hardest things of your sorrow, the ability to keep you focused on eternal matters when temporal matters are falling apart, the ability through prayer by grace to help you think eternally about something rather than just temporally. Friend, you can't do any of that on your own. 
None of that is capable of you. You're not capable of any of that. You need God's help through prayer. And so Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. So I wonder, as you think of life in this sin-cursed world, do you view it like Peter, who was in this conversation? He heard these words of Jesus. First Peter three or First Peter one, excuse me. He's writing to a persecuted church, facing the affliction of a sin-cursed world, sorrowful because of all the opposition. He says to them, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Everything in our text in John 16 is in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. I only read 3 through 6. The, the hope of Jesus in the midst of sorrow brought about by faith through prayer for a salvation that is not yet fully realized. Beloved, you will have sorrow. Sorrow will turn into joy. And that joy is eternally secure. May he, by his kindness, increase your joy today as you pray to him to do that very thing. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for joy, which is the result of the sorrows you ordain We ask that you would help us to keep our eyes on that prize of the eternal joy that is ours in our Lord Jesus so that we, like him, might endure the shame, the agony, and the sorrow of this present evil world. Father, would you help us to be faithful? More than that, in faithfulness, would you give us great and ever-increasing joy as we see your touch upon our lives. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.